Welcome to the RV Travel Podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. Hope you're doing well. <clears throat> Hope you learned something. Have a little fun this week on the podcast. Oh, a plethora of topics to cover. Everything from saving electricity as we learn more about camping away from shore power more frequently. We'll have an expert on uh, all things electrical. We'll get some tips from you on must-have RV and camping cooking gear. A fellow RVer will take us on a tour of Yellowstone and all the things we need to be concerned about or all those things we must see while we're there. We'll have another reader slash listener on the care and feeding of a campground host. He's one. He's on both sides of the transaction quite often. Talk a little bit about campfires, who builds them and why. We'll get a factory tour from the developer of the new Jayco Eagle fifth wheels, towable by a half ton pickup. And here I just got a hall pass, so I'm looking for an early season off-grid fishing destination for next week. If you have any, let me know. What are your plans? You got the rig out, all ready to roll. Maybe it never got put away. That's how it is at our house. You know, I go to the Facebook pages often and talk, talk to everybody and listen to everybody more than I talk. I guess that's the right way to do it. My mom said so, at least. And one of the things that intrigued me, because we're always, I'm, I'm kind of a gadget guy. That's what happens when you're a fly fisher, for example. You always got to have the best, newest, coolest thing. Brenda Mahler asks on the Facebook page, rvtravel.com, you can get to it from there. What is your favorite and necessary cooking appliance when traveling? Uh, Brenda, Brenda, mine comes in a bottle. It's brown and it's old and it's from Scotland, but other people had much better priorities and suggestions for the rest of us. Debbie McLeod says her Ninja Flip sounds like a, well, I don't know, a gymnastics trick. Her Ninja Flip and her Blackstone Grill. Lorraine Mailote says the Big Easy. It's better than a barbecue and you can bake in it like an oven. Debbie Veach says, my coffee maker. Debbie, I'm right there with you. If it's not on by the time I roll out of the sack, I'm in big trouble. It's not going to be a very good day. David Epps says, we pre-make and freeze all of our meals. The most used tool in the kitchen, the microwave. Man after my own heart. Now, Ed Bremer has the best idea. Once in a while, there is nothing. I don't care whether you watch Hank Hill or not, the best tasting food comes off a charcoal grill at the campsite. Yes, it does, Ed. Good job, everybody. Sure enjoy talking with you on Facebook. You know, rvtravel.com has about eight or ten active Facebook groups and pages. Just go to resources on rvtravel.com, click there, then go to the Facebook pages. Everything from advice to travel with somebody with a disability, et cetera, et cetera. They're all right there. And you can talk with your friends about all the things that are important to you. 
So welcoming to the RV Travel Podcast, Mike Sokol. You probably recognize that name. He writes quite a bit for RVTravel.com. He's got his own book, RV Electrical Safety, available at Amazon.com. Hey, right next to mine, I hope, because yours is going to pump up the sales of mine, Mike. Uh, lots of experience. In fact, uh, Mike's been in the electrical and electricity industry in one way, shape, or form for well, almost as long as Thomas Edison, I believe. Mike, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, when you and Tesla were competing against Thomas Edison uh, to invent <laughs> <laughs> the right kind of like... <laughs> yeah, tell, me, tell me how you got to this point with us in the RV world. I mean, it, uh, it, but don't dwell on the music thing or we'll be here for, till tomorrow. Oh no! The, the the brief thing is um, the brief the brief story is I really started doing this when I was about four years old and started learning about electricity, um, just to experiment with things, um, and uh, tried to build a perpetual motion machine in my basement when I was eight. Then then of course uh, once I got into uh, actual jobs out there, um, you know I, I worked for Corning Glass for a while and I was a a um, robotics designer for them and a plant troubleshooter for three-phase power. I uh, used to build nuclear guidance systems in the 80s and calibrate them um, and started writing for the RV industry about 10 years ago um, under the tutelage of Gary Bunzer. I, I had camped a lot when I was younger, but you know, in the middle of all this, you know, I'm a, a, a rock and roll sound engineer that done huge, huge shows. And a, a number of my friends were complaining that they were getting shocked from these big tour buses, you know, a million dollar tour bus. How could you possibly be shocked off of that? So that's when I started looking around um, to, to try to find out exactly what was going on. And the state of the art in terms of people that had written about um, RV shocks and everything seemed to be a lot of it was incorrect and not complete. Um, so I did some calling around and I, I found Gary Bunzer, you know, the RV doctor. Uh, sat, sadly, who died a year ago, and um, I, I asked him, I said, what is going on? Because a lot of this looks wrong, and he said, well, what do you know about it? And I said, well, I've already got 40 years experience doing this stuff. Um, maybe I could write better. So Gary um, helped me get connected up with, uh, with Chuck and a few of the other things and invited me to come in to do a number of his seminars. So when I would go visit him at Hershey or one of the other shows, he'd say, well, I might come up here and just take over my electrical thing for an hour. So wow, I got launched into doing this by Gary. Yeah. Well, uh, good for you and good for us. Um, we all learn something every time you put fingers on a keyboard or we talk rock stars, but we'll do that <laughs> some other time off mic. In the meanwhile, you know, right now, um, everybody is, you know, all in a tizzy over um, oh, the fact that there's, you know, a couple million more RVs on the road than there were a year ago. All those people are competing for the same campsites in the same campgrounds. So we're looking for ways to, well, number one, use our RV more, use it right. maybe what I'll call off grid a little bit more. But there are things we need to know uh, before we do much of that, primarily so that we feel more confident uh, what what are what are kind of at the top of the list based on what you learn from everybody who calls you in a panic? Well, you know, uh, a, a lot of times the first time that a uh, uh, a new RV owner will try out to see how much they can go off grid, 
is they'll already be hundreds of miles from home, which is kind of a silly thing. You know, you want to go ahead and try this in your backyard first to see if this is going to work. Um, and then the second thing is um, many of them don't understand the need to kind of do to self-moderate the amount of power. We, you know, we call it manual load shedding. <laughs> um, and, and you need to do it. So a home appliance, you know, that, that little outlet at your home and your, that, you know, that you don't think about, that you plug in to replicate the power available from that little outlet, at the very least, you need a, a 2,000 watt generator. Every outlet in your house basically has that capability of putting that out, whereas in your RV, you basically are running your entire RV off of not much more than the power of one electrical outlet. Wow. And battery stuff is even more complicated because batteries have a certain amount of finite storage in them. So, you know, you look at some of the some of the simplest things you never think about at your home. Okay, uh, you know, I've got a microwave in the kitchen and my wife or daughter or whatever's blow drying her hair in the bathroom. Those are always in separate circuits in a um, in a home, in a regular bricks and sticks home. But in an RV, they're generally always the same circuit. So a lot of these things, you have to give up this ability to run big things all at the same time. And now, what, what, Mike, just to be just to be sure here, everybody, we're talking about uh, not plugged into shore power when we're no, talking well, about even these even 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 plugged into shore power. You really? have to do this, okay? And that's and that and that's the easy part. When you go when you go on to batteries, now you've got to say how long can I run a device? How long? And so you look at that. Basically, think of it as a storage tank or like a bank account. So you in and let's say that that bank account will hold um, twelve hundred bucks. Okay, so twelve hundred watt hours. So now you've got to start looking at okay, my hair dryer that I'm going to run uh, takes something like uh, twelve hundred watts, and I want to run it for thirty, you know, tw twenty minutes. So that's going to be on the four hundred watt hours. You have used up one third of your battery capacity, <laughs> your battery storage. Wow. To blow dry your hair. And that's be and, that's if it's the only thing you've done with your batteries. That's the only thing that you've got going on. Right. Uh, CPAP machines are another one. I've seen many uh, uh, many RV users, owners, uh, I think up to 50% one of the surveys have a CPAP machine. Those can completely drain a battery down overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, other things include that, that are really, really big power hogs or things like microwave ovens and such. And so, and the biggest one, this is the holy grail. This is what everybody wants to do. In fact, I've been doing a lot of research on it. They want to run their air conditioner, their rooftop air conditioner off of batteries. And, and it's sort of possible, but you got to have a lot of batteries to do this. You do. Um, and so it comes down to the managing your expectations, this idea of running an air conditioner 24 hours a day off of an electrical outlet. If you work really, really hard at it, you might be able to get two to four hours of runtime in the evening to cool your room down. But you got to do a lot of stuff to make that happen. And that's a lot of batteries to, to do this. But Mike Sokol, the, all of that to me is stuff that you, if, if you understand electricity even a little bit, and I, that's all I understand, those all make sense. But are there hidden secret bad things that we should probably consider that we're not 
uh, I don't know what else to call them, phantom drains or, or anything. Oh, the, you have, there, there are all, everything, there's basically everything uses a little power and, and, and leaks electricity. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, even something like the humble wall, wall wart that may be powering something like that um, uses, leaks a few watts. So for instance, if you have a, uh, I'll give you an example. Let's say that you have a refrigerator that's a, and in a standard 120 volt residential refrigerator, which mm -hmm. a lot of people have, mm -hmm. and you have to have an inverter to power that refrigerator because it's got to step to 12 volts from your battery up to drive the refrigerator. That inverter, even when the refrigerator is not running, is taking about 10 to 20 watts of power just to keep the inverter happy, the little fan inside running it. So if you look at that over a 24-hour period of 10 watts of that thing, just waste power, that's 240 watt hours. Okay, that is about one quarter of the power available in your battery has just gone to waste wow. in that, not even powering the refrigerator. That's just... <laughs> Keeping the inverter happy. That's one of the big things. So this is why one of the things I recommend are things like 12-volt DC uh, compressor refrigerators. Danfoss refrigerator, compressor refrigerators are fabulous. They, they will extend the battery life two or three times compared to a residential refrigerator. Um, so little tricks like that. So, and and mm -hmm. you know, don't leave things all these things that run all the time now you have to leave the power on for your um carbon monoxide and smoke detectors and all that other kind of stuff but when you are not in the camper this is when you want to have be able to use a battery disconnect sure um because you, you if not you'll drain the thing down in weeks maybe a month just from those parasitic uh loads happening all the time it wow. just sucks it away. You're listening to the RV Travel Podcast. I'm Scott Linden. That's Mike Sokol. And Humble Wallwort sounds like it ought to come out of a Harry Potter novel. But I think I know what you mean there. But describe what you're actually telling us about there. Okay. A lot of people have, you know, little phone chargers. Yeah. And things to drive, you know, like a, a little boom box or whatever, the little black cube that you plug into the wall mm -hmm. those things will each even when they're not being used um they will take a watt or two or so um and so you could easily have 10 or 20 watts worth of things running all the time that aren't that when they're not even doing anything they're just kind of sitting there so anything that you touch and it feels the slightest bit warm that means it's wasting electricity now, you don't worry about that in a home because you have basically unlimited power coming in. But if you have to carry your power with you in a battery, now you worry about it. Because, again, if you had 20 watts worth of waste heat, you know, and all of these things running, and you ran it for 24 hours, guess what? All you got to do is multiply 20 times 24. You've got, what, 480? That is a, over a third of the power of, your, of the storage energy, and your battery has just gone away doing nothing yeah that sucks almost literally it does so think <laughs> about this let's say you got a certain amount of money in your bank account and you go in every day and you're getting a starbucks for five bucks right <laughs> and all of a sudden you look at it at the end of the month and you go where wait where did all my money go i started with a thousand dollars you bled it out five dollars at a time and you're bleeding it out five watts at a time it's just how it works 
Okay, so I've, I've come to the conclusion that I, and I did, uh, I finally bought a generator. I didn't buy a big enough one, but I bought one. And, and if I use it correctly, I can actually top off my batteries every morning if I need to. But I'm just a music major, and all I do is I, I finally figured out how to start the darn thing. I know where to put the fuel. Um, and then I just plug an extension cord in. Is there anything I need to be concerned about? Is there a right way and a wrong way to use a generator? Enlighten us, Mike. Well, okay, so look at it this way. I get people that because some of these generators have something that says it's a 12-volt charging output, that yeah. they think that that's what they need to hook into their batteries, mm -hmm. and that's completely wrong. I, had this, I mean, that is, first off, it's not regulated, and second off, it's usually limited to about 7 amperes at 12 volts, something like that. What you really want to do is plug the shore power cord from your RV via the right adapters into your generator, its outlet, and then that generator will be able to provide up to, say, 1,500 or 2,000 watts of power, which actually will easily charge your batteries at 100 amperes, 80 amperes, 100, whatever it'll take. And so, and then you may only have to run your generator an hour, let's say, to bring the thing up to full power. Yeah, I've got two or three versions in different colors of those little adapters that go from the, you know, the 30 amp plug to the whatever we call the normal plug that we're all used to. Is there anything we need to be concerned about there? Should we get one of a certain type or a certain color? Well, the color doesn't matter, although what you will find is some RVs, just depending on how they're built, will have something that's called a, um, you know, an advanced surge protector or an EMS, electrical management system. They do not like generators that have what, something called a floating neutral. That is, it's not that the generators aren't grounded. It's that the generators aren't bonded internally. And about eight or nine years ago, I came up with this this cute little uh, generator grounding plug, neutral bonding plug. Uh, you can buy anywhere on um, uh, Amazon for I don't know ten or twelve bucks, or roll your own for two or three bucks if you want. And but that plugs into one of the unused outlets on the generator. Then what it does is it creates the correct reference voltage for ground and neutral, and it will allow the power to pass into your RV. So some of these the RVs will not power up from a, uh, a an inverter generator unless you do this little bonding plug. And you can look all that stuff up on all of my articles. Great. And and the best place to get all your stuff is it still rvelectricity.com. That, that I have some of my stuff there, but okay. in actuality everything is over on rvtravel.com. Fantastic. And if you just go in there and do a search engine on Sokol or you know SOKOL or, or 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 electricity or whatever you'll see that I, I think I've, I've got at least 500 published articles wow. that I know of on RV travel and then I have a lot of my earlier stuff on noshockzone.org and then I'm trying to catalog this stuff over an RV electricity there's there's a lot to do I, I write a lot I mean I publish yeah. eight to ten articles per month Wow just over on uh, rvtravel.com. Um, all right, so answer this one final question about generators. And we're going to have to have another talk down the road about how to do this all right when we are in an RV park. But for okay. now, let's cap it with this. Okay, I got my generator. It's ready to roll. Um, I got my uh, travel trailer. I got the RV power, that, that the cord that I usually plug into the pedestal. Right. First off, do I put a surge protector anywhere in that equation? Okay, now 
I, I, oh, I always used to say that you only ever have to do this if you have a contractor generator. Those old jobs yeah, those, make a lot of noise. The really noisy ones, yeah. Because they go over voltage and they do crazy things all the time. And then I thought, okay, I don't need this for modern Honda generators. And then a couple of months ago, I had somebody call and his Honda, his brand new E3000, ES3000 Honda generator went over voltage. It went to 175 volts and burned up a bunch of stuff in his RV. Yikes. Yikes. And I said, I have, and they said they, Honda uh, could not answer it. So they replaced the big main circuit board in there and everything was fine, but not before it burned up a bunch of stuff. Wow. So, you know, I I think Hondas now here's the thing. People don't want to spend the money on a Honda, but inverter generators generally are really, really good at this. This maybe happens a tiny, tiny percentage of the time. But they actually make power that's cleaner mm-hmm. than what's coming in off the grid to you. Right. They absolutely do. Okay, so and, then, um, so then we go from there. Do we start the generator, then plug our cord into it, or do we plug you our can cord? Plug, in? You can you can plug all of it all it together and start this thing up. Most okay. of them will have a circuit breaker that you can leave off. Then once it's up to speed, you flip the breaker on. Or don't worry about it. They're smart enough. They're absolutely smart enough to deal with that. Okay. All um, right. It's generally not a good idea to be plugging and unplugging things while power is on because mm-hmm. it will make the contacts arc Yikes. and create problems. And we don't like that. Those well, pretty sparks that you see, they're not electrons. They are not happy electrons. They're pieces of metal oh. that are superheated that are spalling off. So plug in. Then power up. Same way with your pedestal for your circuit breakers. Plug in, power up the circuit breaker before you disconnect, power down the circuit breaker, and then unplug. Boy, we could talk all day about this. And that's before we talk about how many times each of us have seen Alice Cooper hang himself in concert. (laughs) Uh, But we'll leave some of that for our next discussion. Mike Sokol, a wealth of information, a lot of his stuff at rvtravel.com. That's the way uh, we're going to leave it for now. Mike, thank you so much for being a part of the RV Travel Podcast. Well, Scott, thank you very much for having me. And don't you go away. We got lots more, including a tour of Yellowstone National Park, America's first. And we'll talk about the care and feeding of your campground host, all coming right up on RV Travel Podcast. First, though, I'm looking at the box. I got it open. You can hear it because I'm opening it right here in front of you. It's uh, If you look to the right speaker, you'll see the installation instructions, which are basically all online now for the Soft Start RV by Network RV. If you want more information on them, softstartrv.com slash RV travel is where you get it. Simple, easy. You can do it yourself now. You don't even need to know anything about hard wiring because now the folks at Soft Start RV, Doug and Brian, have developed a kit where you splice all of the wires and then mount the Soft Start RV yourself. Simple, easy. I'm going to try it. I may be calling Doug and Brian in a panic, but that's because I'm usually not allowed to use power tools at our house. Soft Start RV is one of those things, man, I wish I'd thought of it. You know, you turn your air conditioner on in the RV, there's a big jolt of power to get it started. Well, that's the big thud when it's kicking in. But once it's started, you don't need near as much power. 
to keep it going. So if you have a, let's just call it an underpowered generator, you can still use that air conditioner or maybe even two, depending on how they're put together. If you have the soft start RV, it kind of cushions the startup, manages that power surge so it doesn't hit all at once. Makes your life a little simpler and your travel trailer, your camper, or your fifth wheel a lot cooler. Learn more about Soft Start RV at softstartrv.com slash RV travel. And speaking of rvtravel.com, wouldn't you consider becoming a member? Or as Mike Sokol uh, described earlier in the podcast, there is a wealth of information, a treasure trove of articles, thousand, in fact, over 10,000 articles on stuff. No matter what you need help with, it's right there. Maybe it's a recipe. Maybe it's a place to go. It's all there at rvtravel.com. Okay, so once again, uh, Yellowstone has ranked highest on the list of destinations for RV travelers for 2021. So to me, that means don't go. But to many of us, it means I got to get there before everybody else. Or when I'm there, I've got to maximize my experience. I get it. And if you haven't been, you must go. It's on everybody. It should be on everybody's bucket list. But, you know, being an RV or going to Yellowstone is a little different than just being some schmo in a, you know, a passenger car. And that's why I thought our reader slash listener, Don Hutchins, would love to share his observations of, well, the park that uh, Theodore Roosevelt decided was worth protecting in any number of ways. Don Hutchins, welcome to the RV Travel Podcast. Thank you, Scott. Happy to be with you. You know, I asked a while back on, I think it was on Facebook, um, you know, where should we all go? I mean, what what are those kind of places? And you were adamant that Yellowstone ought to be on there. And um, I can't agree more. In fact, I just sold an article to a magazine on Yellowstone today. So I can't wait to be writing about it. And uh, Be careful, I might quote you in there. Why do you like it so much? Well, it's, it's just that it's totally unique. Now, having said that, yeah, there's lots of other totally unique national parks, but this one is kind of the biggest and best. It's the creme de la creme of all of them, even though it's not the most scenically spectacular. You know, it's not the Grand Canyon. It's not Mount Rainier. It's not Crater Lake or Yosemite, but it has got just some of the most mind-boggling features and it's it's very scale. The fact that the thing is so enormous just just blows you away. You know, it's funny you bring that up because I was sitting there jotting down notes after this assignment uh, on w- what kind of uh, superlatives I'm going to use and about what. What are the things that we, if we're there, we cannot live without seeing? Well, for me, it's the geological, uh, the the uh, the the features that are driven by the that enormous mound of lava underneath the uh, underneath the the caldera yeah which which is is popping up through the ground at places all over the park the paint pots uh, the the hot springs that you uh, that you can stand next to and look down through this rainbow colored water into infinite depths of the earth 
and and the stuff is boiling up at you as you're looking and the and the geysers i mean old faithful of course is the is the most famous one but there's probably 50 or 100 others scattered around and then there's there's yellowstone lake which is an absolutely magnificent thing the yellowstone river with its uh, upper and lower falls which are which are mind-boggling i don't know that there's another well okay niagara falls is is probably bigger and better but it's the coolest waterfall in in the lower 48 for my money and then and then you've got the wildlife you've got this this vast enormous wilderness where there are at least in the times that i have visited where there are almost no people now you you make a very good point uh, you probably don't want to go there in summer or if you do you want to plan very very carefully we've only ever been in the fall we go after after labor day so that uh, most of the school kids are are back in school and that helps that helps in visiting there a lot well, that, that is the best tip so far. I know we'll have a few more. By the way, you're listening to the RV Travel Podcast. That's Don Hutchins, one of our followers, and I'm Scott Linden, one of your hosts. Don, what kind of rules should we make for ourselves if we're pulling a travel trailer or bringing a motor coach into the park? What, are the, what, what kind of advice do you have for us? For me, the most important thing is where you decide to, to position yourself, and you should only do it once. The, the park is so big and so difficult to get around just in a car that uh, I, don't, I don't think it's a great idea to be hauling your, your uh, travel trailer or your fifth wheel, or even worse, driving your bus uh, through that park to see things. Uh, there is, for me, the place I stay, and I've, the times I have visited, well, I visited once in a Volkswagen campmobile, but that probably doesn't count. It was in like 1989. Uh, the, the recent visits have been in a, either a big fifth wheel trailer or then we graduated to a 40 foot motor coach. And so I, I, I want a campground that's got A, full hookups, B, is relatively easy to get to, and C, is then well placed to explore the park. And for me, that place, in, in, in my, my mind, it's hands down, the best is Flag Ranch, which is just a couple miles south of the south entrance to the park. And what, because because not only can you do the park from there, but if you turn around and head the other direction, you're only a few minutes away from the Grand Tetons, which are another absolutely magnificent Rocky Mountain Park that, that you've got to see. And, you know, I'll echo that, Don. Uh, if you're at Yellowstone, don't be silly drive south when you're done and see the Grand Tetons as well. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, there are things, there are other things about um, what I'll call campground capacity uh, for, for those of us who are pulling a travel trailer or any other kind of RV for that matter. Um, I think they still have that rule about hard sides. You can't camp in a tent in most of those places because there's these pesky bears, whether they're black or brown, you don't want them you know, kind of op opening up your tent. But are there? Uh, do we need to be concerned about length restrictions, for example? I think the national park campgrounds do have length restrictions. I haven't camped in them since my Volkswagen campmobile days, so I'm not up to speed on that. But I would be surprised if you could take a 40-foot or a 42-foot or even anything bigger than about 30-foot uh, camper into any of those national park campgrounds. Well, the other thing I remember, and the reason I bought the generator I bought, is because it it's underneath the decibel level 
that the the National Park Service uh, restricts you to uh, inside the park. So those are two things that that anybody ought to take a look at as well. But there's also this whole idea of reservations in there, and you know it's going to be crazy anyway. So getting ahead of the curve on all of that probably makes sense. Yeah, once you're there and you're going around, if, if, any suggestions on a on logic to seeing all these things? Uh, yeah, again, I'm looking at the map because I'm writing a story about it. Yep. There's a big, you know, you can. In fact, they call it the Grand Loop Road. I think. Um, yep. Tell me about the, you know, a travel strategy within the park. Well, it depends on how much time you have. For me, I don't think you can see the park adequately in less than about a week. People's eyebrows are going to raise over that, but there is so much to see in this park that I think that's a reasonable time. My approach to it has been to take the Grand Loop, which if you look at it, it really, there's a figure eight because there's a little road that cuts across the middle of this Grand Loop, and it's a very north-south oriented loop. I take that and I, and I break it in two. And so I'll go and do say a half of one of the upper loop or lower loop on a day and then go back and chill and then go back and do the other half of that same loop in a day and then go back and chill maybe take a day off or maybe just dabble your feet in the off a fishing bridge and and look at the lake for a while just to decompress then go back and do the same kind of thing on the other half of the loop because it's the loop is about 80 miles around each half so the total grand grand loop, I guess they could do call it the grand loop, don't they? Yeah. The, the total distance around that thing is going to be 130 or 140 miles, and you're stopping all the time. You will not believe the number of times you will come to a dead stop on the road because there's, A, a herd of bison, or B, a, a couple of ginormous Roosevelt elk with 15 points laying down right next to the road you're going to be stopping and going all the plus a lot these geological features take time and and once you walk up to something like the grand prismatic spring you'll be standing there on the boardwalk with your chin on your chest going oh my god how can this even exist and you'll you could stand there for an hour so you can't do it you can't do it in a day or two this can't be done yeah bring extra batteries for your camera uh uh chill out uh, yep. there, there's going to be, like you said, the traffic jams all the time. Um, as Ray Wiley Hubbard said, and the days that I keep my gratitude higher than my expectations, I have really good days. There you and, go. and that's a Yellowstone attitude. That's for darn sure. You know, um, when you're describing all that stuff, the only one I would add to that is spend some time in the Lamar Valley early in the morning. That might be the best chance to get a look at one of the things most of us will never see wolves but there are so many things in that park uh, uh check me on this that that most of us would never never see anywhere else ever. absolutely that's that's why it's that's why it's for me that's the big it's the big enchilada of national parks i i'm gonna i'm gonna describe a, a um what do they call it a prosaic moment that i think really st- stands out in my mind we were stuck in one of those traffic jams for who knows what a a mile ahead of us and we're on a on a meadow uh somewhere on that grand loop uh road and i see a coyote and he's stock still 
and you, if you know coyotes or if you know dogs for that matter, you know, he's listening. He's got his head cocked to the side a little bit and you can see his back starts to arch a little and you can see the muscles tense just a little. Then boom, he does a, just like on TV, just on national geographic, he, he does that kind of swan dive into the grass and pulls up a little, I don't even know what it was, a mole, a ground squirrel or something like that. And to me, that is, again, I can see that almost every day out here behind my house, but most people will never see any of that sort of thing. Describe Old Faithful to people who have only seen the postcard or the TV version. I mean, isn't, well, is not is that right up there? It's, it's one of the few things you will ever see in your life that actually absolutely meets or exceeds any expectation you might have had of it. You know, you go there and, and of course, even at off times of year, the crowds, because the, the eruptions are timed, the, the, you, you walk into the lodge and the ranger will tell you when the next eruption is going to happen, give or take five or 10 minutes. And so the crowd starts to gather. And by the time the thing erupts, the crowd is six or eight or 10 or 12 people deep. And yet, even so, it's it just it just blows your socks off. This thing starts to rumble and spout and spurt, and then all of a sudden, there's water shooting sixty. It must be sixty or eighty feet in the air, and it goes on for uh, I don't remember, but it, I'm betting it's fifteen or twenty seconds. And every time it goes off, it's quite, it's quite a sight. It is, and and it, you, you, again, it's one of if you're there, you got to do it. But there are so many other kind of charming little geysers here and there that are fun as well and then and then the mud pots that just keep chugging away like like the offensive line in a football team they're just there doing their work and getting no glory (laughs) out of it but i love them all and and that grand prismatic if you all right everybody when you're done here not until then but when you're done listening to the rv travel podcast google grand prismatic spring and get an aerial photo of that that is like eight percent of what it looks like when you're there so just get a good long look at it don hutchins uh if you had to narrow it down to one thing that we should probably take into account uh practical advice or something like that uh if we're an rv traveler going to yellowstone what is one more important thing we better make sure we know about bring with us, leave it home at all costs, whatever it is. The thing you got to understand is safety. These geological features are big pots of boiling water. And you will not believe the number of people who have wandered or jumped or fallen or whatever into these hot springs over the years okay let's end on a high note (laughs) (laughs) but thank you for the warning and and actually for a lot of people that that might be the the best way to get it get your point across don hutchins thank you so much for being a part of the rv travel podcast it's been a pleasure scott And, you know, we're talking a lot about electrical because, you know, a lot of us are talking about getting off the grid more. And uh, Jonathan Schlue has a solution for that. Cargenerator.com is where you learn more about this clever solution. Maybe you don't want to drag a big generator around or maybe you're underwhelmed by your solar panels and what they can actually do to help enhance your RV travel experience. Cargenerator.com. Learn all about, well, what to me is such a 
clever idea. You already own 75% of a backup generator in your driveway. It's set right there. Probably has seating for four, a steering wheel, and four tires. But the mechanical stuff is basically the same as a giant generator. Jonathan has come up with all the other stuff, puts it into a nice, neat package that is weatherproof and no-brainer in terms of the use. You hook it up to your car's or truck's batteries, your tow vehicle, or your um, towed, for that matter. Get 50 to 70 hours of runtime from a car's average gas tank. You know how many times you'd fill up a generator in that same amount of time. Take a look at all the information you can get at cargenerator.com. Whether you camp at uh, an RV park, a forest service campground, or um, anywhere else that's somewhat organized, there's a good chance you'll run into a camp host of one sort or another. Lee Brandt joins us on the line to talk about this from an insider's perspective. Lee, welcome to the RV Travel Podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. You, um, like some, and I want to thank everybody in advance for this, uh, heeded my request to talk about stuff, and uh, here we are finally connecting on it. You have seen both sides of the camp host game. Tell me a little bit about your, uh, first off, what kind of rig are you pulling these days? Well, right now we are in an A-class, 33-foot A-class. It's probably motorhome number 20 throughout our life. Wow. Uh, Yeah. uh, but right now we have our, our A-class, and it's, just, it's the perfect setup for us. Besides um, uh, the stuff we see every day when it comes to camp hosts and what they do, tell me a little bit about what you are, um, uh, how you got into the camp host game. Well, uh, what happened is uh, we go to, we, we're only about three hours from Yosemite, and the wife and I went up there for for a day trip and we were just driving around in our car and uh we just we went to one of the kiosks and there was a gentleman there and there's nobody around i mean there's campers and stuff but there's nobody around and i happened to ask the guy i said hey i said how do you go about becoming a camp host and he told me he said you go to uh volunteer.gov and he goes he said it's a great big website and it's it's uh, nationwide you go to where you want to go, and he goes. Then you fill out the papers, and then you see, and then you just kind of kick back and wait. And that's exactly what happened. And we got a call. Uh, of course, I originally wanted to camp host down in the valley of Yosemite, uh, but then we got a call from a lady uh, who wanted us to camp host, see if we would be willing to camp host up in Bridal Veil, which is about at seven thousand feet up uh, Glacier Point Road. And she said, so we did an interview, you know, kind of a lot, a lot like this, you know, on the phone. Uh-huh. And uh, probably, oh, I don't know, maybe two, three weeks later, she gave us a call. And she offered us, she goes, apparently it's hard to get uh, camp hosts for up there because there's there's virtually no services up there at all. You know, it's uh, totally boondocking. And uh, they have they have sewer connection for the camp host and water sometimes 
and a uh, propane. And she goes, so they have a hard time getting camp host. So it's like, okay. She goes, wanted to give it a try, and we get, gave it a try, and we fell in love with it. So you're uh, you're an yeah. RVer first right. and foremost, and then all of a sudden you get pulled into this world of being nice to other RVers among other yeah, people pretty, up there. Yeah. Well, pretty much, you know. I mean, if you're an RVer, as as you very well know, RVers are, are a totally different uh, breed, if for lack of a better word, uh, because they're all they're all you know ninety nine point nine percent they're all friendly. <laughs> you know, I and and it's the truth. You know, I mean, everywhere we go, you know, we want to know, hey, how you doing? You know, like the dog. You know, we walk the dog, and you know, every, if you're walking a dog, you're friends with everybody. Well, well. So, what has been the highlight of your camp host career? What I mean, what are the things that oh. that make you want to come back? Oh, it's the people, the people that come to visit. You know, especially being there in Yosemite. Because you get people from all over the world. I mean, literally all over the world. And uh, you get to talk to them. You know, sometimes there's a language barrier. You know, there was one gentleman that was, uh, he was from Russia. And he was just the nicest man. And we tried to communicate. I must have talked to him for an hour. And between the two of us, I probably learned three Russian words. And he learned probably three American words, but it it was just interesting talking to him. You know, basically using sign language. Sure, you know. So, so, so when you're there, uh, and uh, granted, your experience may be different than other people who are pondering becoming a camp host or, or who oh, already are. What what is a typical day in the life of a camp host? The typical day would you know you tell the people say okay well we have X amount of uh, campsites if you'd like a campsite go out and find one you know put a tag on it, leave a chair there or a cooler or something, and then come back and we will register you. And that was basically it. You know, probably by about 10 o'clock, the campground was full. And all we did was just, we just stayed there. You know, it was, it was a 24-7 job. It didn't have to be. But, you know, we're in Yosemite. You know, I mean, we're in God's country. I mean, it's just beautiful there. And so we sat there, you know, I, I made a puzzle, you know, we played uh, solitaire, you know, we played cards, you know, but we were there just to answer people's questions. Sure. You know, we had been going to Yosemite since we were very young and we got to, uh, you know, and so we got to share our experiences with the campers, you know, advise them to, okay, well, yeah, you can go on this such and such a trail, you know, be careful, you know, watch out for bears, you know, and chipmunks, you know, and, and <laughs> and stuff like that, you know, and just, we could just share our own experience and they would, you know, they would ask, they would ask, ask for recommendations, you know, and we just, like I said, we just answer questions and being that we were at Bridalville Creek campground, a lot of people came in there wanting to know where the waterfalls were. Mm -hmm. Well, we would tell them this, you know, turn around and drive half a mile is 3000 feet down. <laughs> Yikes! <You know? laughs> yeah, pretty much. Go so, ahead. So, um, if we're going to be a camper in a campground that has a camp host, uh huh, what are some of the things that you would you would appreciate as a camp host if we did them or we didn't do them? Behaviors or p protocol, courtesies, that right. sort of thing. 
Well, number one would be courtesy, courtesy of your fellow campers, you know, and, you know, respect, respect the camp host because the camp host is there for you. You know, they're, they're there to be a, a, a go between for somebody to go to, you know, I mean, if you get hurt, you know, and I'm talking minor hurt or something <laughs> like that, you know, yeah. or if you need a, uh, a corkscrew, for instance, you know, and, and you don't have one and, you know, and you're, you know, 30 miles from nowhere. Well, you kind of go to the camp. I'll say, you find a chance to have a corkscrew. <laughs> you know, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, uh, there are people that come to us and uh, they have like a CPAP machine. Sure. You know, uh, how do we charge our CPAP machine? Well, I'm sorry, we have no electricity. Well, us as campos, we have a generator and we can gen turn our generators on at certain hours during the day. And we ask them to, if you would like to charge your battery, bring it to us and we'll charge it. Great. So, you know, we're basically, as a campos, we're there to help the the people, you know, enjoy their experience, you know, and the thing, you know, it's like I get back to the, the common courtesy of, you know, of quiet time. You know, uh, we don't we don't enforce it. We just ask, you know, uh, sure. you know, you know, it, it's like it's like, please don't shoot the messenger, you know, but, you know, if your music is too loud and your neighbor hears it, you know, maybe you don't want to hear theirs and they don't want to hear yours. Uh, it's kind of yeah. like uh, another topic we'll get to soon, uh, campfires right. or, or generators for that matter. Right, right. Well, you know, uh, generators often, they have certain hours. Right. You know, like 7 a.m. to 9 a.m., you know, and then in the, in the evening, you know, and uh, stuff like that. Uh, we never really ran into any problems with it because uh, – the majority of the people who had generators, they had the, you know, the real quiet ones. So you didn't even hear them. You know, I mean, there was a couple of incidents, you know, to where we had to ask the people to, you know, the, Hey, you know, your generator, you know, you can't, you know, you can't have it on this early or you can't have it on this late. And like I say, you know, campers, they're just a bunch of nice people. You know, they say, Oh, oh okay. Oops. Oh, I forgot all about the time, you know, and then they'll go shut it off. You know, yeah. uh, we talked when we talked earlier. Um, you mentioned something that I thought was just such a nice, uh, kind of a, a nice touch, and and there are probably others like this, but we forget that number one, most camp hosts are volunteers. Number two, they're they're right. there for the you know out of the goodness of their heart, and we never we never treat those people as kindly as we should. But you mentioned that a lot of people when they leave still have firewood oh yes exactly well what we wound up doing is we made a, a little handwritten sign on a piece of cardboard there was probably a two by two piece of cardboard that says hosts needs firewood because you know we are hosts and we're there you know and, and you know being a host you're kind of sort of stuck you know and so we had this little sign that said you know host needs firewood firewood and a lot of people on their way out, hey, we got some firewood, some extra firewood here. We'll bring it to you. And they always, we never had to go to their site to get it. They would always bring it to us. So, you know, so treat your camp host right. Um, it, exactly. Yeah. And there are probably other, <laughs> there are probably variations on that. But, you know, like right. you said, being nice, being courteous, all of a sudden it becomes contagious, doesn't it? Oh, exactly. 
Oh, exactly. Yes. You know, I mean, you know, I made up a, a you know, an imaginary sign, you know, that the speed limit was two and a half miles an hour. Sure. You know, and people laughed and they giggled, you know, and they said, well, why did you do that? And I said, well, I said, you know what? I said, we live here. You know, we're here. We're hosts. And it's dusty up here. You know, and if you go through here, you know, five, ten miles an hour, it does kick up dust. But if you get 100 people going past that camp host, you know, during the day, that's a lot of dust. You know, and we made an imaginary, we we uh, we learned to take some uh, sidewalk chalk with us, and we made an, an imaginary speed bump. <laughs> <laughs> and that was just a, a hoot, because oh. people would come up there, and they would just slow down, you know. Of course, there's a lot of people that, you know, they knew what we, we were doing, but hey, it worked for us. Oh, that you is know. great. And, yeah. And a, a great way to end this talk. If you want to learn yeah. more about becoming a camp host, uh, like Lee said, volunteer.gov is a good place to start. Um, I bet there's a, a couple, you know, those work camper websites as well, depending on where you're looking to go and that sort of thing. Lee Brandt, uh, someday, right. someday I'll come visit you at Bridal Vale Creek. And hey. uh, and we'll we'll talk the whole evening over a glass yep. or two about this kind of stuff. There you go. Thanks so much for being part of the RV Travel Podcast. All right, Scott. You take care and have a wonderful day. Yeah, speaking of firewood, I'm constantly combing the uh, surveys at rvtravel.com. Thank you. Emily Woodbury for pulling most of those together. Um, fascinating insights for me and maybe for you too. In a typical summer month, roughly how many nights will you have a campfire? Uh, almost never, 41% of you. Maybe once or twice, 22%. Four or five times, 18%. Very often, maybe one out of every three nights. That's 19% of you said that. Big turnout on that over a 2,000 votes when I looked last. It, it did highlight something that I've seen since in a number of other places, and that is the debate over whether fires, open fires, campfires, uh, or even barbecues, for that matter, I've seen. Uh, we just came back from a place where one of the RV parks was smokeless. Some people have a problem with campfires, uh, and I understand that. I did not before, but... Um, it seems to be a bigger issue than I ever thought. Bill at the rvtravel.com uh, website says, campground campfires are like loud music. They belong out in a remote site. Paul Cecil said uh, he'll do charcoal fires for cooking, cooking, but rarely just light a fire for ambiance. The hassles of hauling wood, etc., make it less interesting. I guess depends on how you uh, define interesting. Sharon Becker says, lately every summer we have a fire ban. No campfires, even in designated fire rings. I may have to get a propane campfire to toast my marshmallows. Grant Graves says, the smoke is bothersome to so many people, and I like being a good neighbor. Gene Bjerke, campfires seem to be de rigueur for most RVers. I suspect that is because most began as tent campers. I get that, and I don't see anything wrong with it either. I guess the key to all of this is learning how to build a smokeless campfire. If you don't know how to do that, maybe you should probably invest in a propane campfire. Well, 
It is time for the Grand Tour here at the RV Travel Podcast, and uh, we are at the Jayco Factory, where Jason Martin, the Director of Product Development for the Eagle Travel Trailers and Fifth Wheels, is going to kind of take us through, um, well, a trend I'm seeing more and more. I was just down in uh, Central California on the coast, and not within five or seven camp campsites of me were two fifth wheels that basically were either called or referred to as half ton towable. Now those are, you know, intriguing if nothing else, maybe for you, maybe for us, certainly for Jayco. So Jason Martin, welcome to the RV travel podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Tell me a little bit about this whole idea. What, why are, why is everybody glomming onto this idea of uh, what is theoretically towable by a half-ton pickup truck? Uh, well, this particular model is under that gross vehicle weighting rate rating of nine thousand nine hundred ninety-five pounds, just under that ten thousand pound mark. Um, more of the newer, newer half tons are are up a little bit above that. Um, so it makes it perfect for your Ford F-150s, your, your Dodge Ram 1500s, um, uh, your Chevy 1500s, all those different trucks that have the, the lower payload capacities and the, the pulling capacities. And it also, a lot of people will, will pick up one of these smaller units with a three-quarter ton truck because it just gives them less weight that they pull behind them and they feel more comfortable with it. Oh, that's um, great. And, and, and by the way, the particular unit we're talking about is your Jayco Eagle 25.5 REOK. You also have a, a, at least one more in that kind of s- same genre, don't you? Yes, we have uh, its sister or little brother, as you wanna, we want to call it, the 24RE. <laughs> um, it's got different layouts, that configurations. Once we get inside, we can kind of talk about some great. differences. Um, we tried out some new things this year. We our HT fifth wheel lineup is what we're talking about. Went through some reconstruction and some modifications this year to make them a little bit more user friendly, get more bed height, get the hitch height a little bit higher, especially for today's trucks. Everything sits so much higher. We try to make it a little bit more level, give you a little bit more headroom in this mid profile type of fifth wheel setup. So it all starts out in the front. We've got this great cap that's got up front. It's got a nice big white exterior with black paint screen so it's a more of a monochromatic type of uh, sidewall color with the graphics um, and everything on it um, but it's got some other features that some others don't we've got these two big long amber lights on them and everybody asks us why the ambers because the ambers can go down the road and they're dot acceptable um, just underneath those big long lights you have these three lights on either side, the white lights, those are just like our docking lights. So they've got, they're all both on individual switches. So you can turn them on and off up underneath the cab over of the, of the unit. One thing that we also did new this year is we went to the LCI Lipper Components Turning Point Hitch. What that does is it allows you to move the turning point of the hitch from actually the pin to back to where the base of it is at by just putting in a different collar. And what's great about that, it's for those trucks that have the short beds, the five and a half foot beds, that it takes that turning radius and it moves it back so that people can do 90 degree turns in those shorter beds without having to have a slider hitch. Even if they don't mean to. Even if they don't mean to. (laughs) But it's just that simple. 
Well, you know, um, a, a lot of things, and I'm a, I'm a Jayco owner as well. Um, a lot of the things you guys do are, are curiously enough grounded in practical experience. Uh, you know, you wonder why other people aren't doing quite as much of that, but, um, and we'll continue our tour in just a moment, but let's, let's go into the guts, uh, of the concept behind making something light enough to be able to tow it with a short bed, half ton truck. What are the bigger things that you had, you guys as product developers had to do to make it towable? Well, um, some of the stuff is that we look at is, is just different weights within. So we're doing, we're an all aluminum frame sidewall, mm-hmm. um, with pounding or two pound foam in our sidewalls. It's an all laminated construction. It's vacuum bonded. That helps take some weight out. Um, we look at different lengths, you know, just different components that you use inside of it. We do do plywood on all, <clears throat> throughout the unit. So we use plywood on our main floor. We use plywood up in our roof, which isn't always, you know, some people use OSB, but anymore, plywood's just as light, or if not lighter than some of the big heavier OSBs. So construction-wise, it helps out. It also allows us to be a little bit lighter in some of those spots too. And then we just different ways. We make sure that we maximize the spacing that we can comfortably in our frame for our, our cross members. Um, we like to keep them within a certain distance, but we like to make sure that we, everything is, is that. We also help take weight out of there. We've looked at different ways um, partnering with Lippert on a stamp cross member versus a rod, welded rod and um, cross member just as sturdy, takes some weight out in there. Um, and then it's just the, just the overall is just try to watch what we put into it. Look for those things that just help it be lighter um, and be mindful of what we're doing. And a lot of times that can weight creep can happen just by, by the production process in itself. You need another backer here. Sometimes people like to just put a bigger backer versus what actually is just needed, you know? Well, so we keep a lot of eye on our process and procedures of the way that we make sure that things are built and just, Make sure that we stay true to what when we built it and we hit a weight. That's where we stay at. I love it. Um, let's uh, let's continue our tour. If you're at the front <laughs> of the unit, let's uh, let's kind of go around. So what we have is we have observation camera prep now new this year. So we've taken our clearance light and we've partnered with Furion, and it's all built in and it's got this little box you can pop off and you can add side cameras to it. So along with the rear camera observation camera that we had before now it's one package two side cameras in the rear that you can actually monitor the sides of your vehicle and the rear of your vehicle as you're traveling down the road so it's prepped for it so if you want to do it after you buy it or you can actually order it in directly from the dealer that way nice and uh walking past the uh entry door and towards the rear end uh, it looks like you've got plenty of storage down there uh well the storage is on the front end of that thing but uh, a lot of windows as well we do we try to put as much light into it because it is a little bit smaller unit um it just helps make sure that that everything gets as light as bright Another thing that we did this year is on our HTs is we split our LP bottles. You'll notice that you'll have um, a 30-gallon LP bottle, 30-pound LP bottle, one on each side now versus both of them crammed on to the one side, uh, what we call the driver's side, off to our side. Then we actually, when we increased our riding height, we actually increased our overall height just a little bit. <clears throat> and when we did that, we opened up our storage compartments and we made them a little bit taller. 
We also took out some of the piping and some other things that were hiding down in below in this 25.5 REOK last year. We've actually tucked all, moved the toilet, and we sucked all that plumbing behind. So now we have one continuous unobstructed pass-through storage. Okay. Hint, hint, hint for you, Jason Martin at Jayco, don't ever use suck and toilet in the same sentence again. <laughs> <laughs> but by the way, Weight Creep is a great name for a rock band. Um, <laughs> so on the rear, we have, you know, we have our ladder. Uh, we've got some rear graphics now this year on the backside. Um, the two lights have backup white lights in them in their taillights that'll back up. And then we also have our hitch receiver. So we have a 3,000 pound towing hitch with a four pin connect receiver connector with a 300 pound tongue weight rating on the backside of this unit. So some of those places in, in different states that allow you to do tandem towing, you can put a small trailer on the backside. A lot of people like the shorter units so they'll be able to carry their boat with them as they go. Mm -hmm. um, some do a small trailer, they like to take a motorcycle with them. Um, coming around to the other side, you know, we've, we've reconfigured um, on all of our HT series. We moved all of our furnaces and water heaters up to up underneath the main compartment. So all the water heaters, um, you have access from the outside and all your furnaces, you can actually access them from the outside and pull them out if you had to work on them. Nice. So we kind of made sure that everything sat in one spot, made it a little bit more friendly for um, serviceability. And that is the side with two slide outs, it looks like. The camp side with unobstructed. So we put, you know, we've got the big awning. We have no slide out on that side. So you have yeah. no worry about having to walk around something with the outside kitchen. So we concentrated everything to the other side. We have our um, dinette and you have your, your sofa or you can have your optional theater seating or dinette booth in the one. And then up front, we decided we give you a little bit more wardrobe space so that this particular model, you have a walkthrough in the bathroom from the bedroom and it just gives you. So it all just depends on floor plan layout and what, what we think that we need in that particular moment in time. Because things are ever changing. I love the idea of putting um, storage in a slider so that you can make yep. a little bit more, uh, like you said, uh, walking room in the bedroom, if you will. All right. Well, um, hustle around, watch your head and hustle yep. around back to the stairs and let's go inside and take a quick look at the interior. And while you're doing that, I'll remind everybody you're listening to the RV travel podcast. Uh, Tony Bartle has a great uh, review. If you're looking for more specifics and a whole bunch of images, go to rvtravel.com and just search for Tony and, uh, and he'll have a, a quick written summary for you as well. So Jason, you got the keys out. You ready to unlock the front door and go inside? Oh, we're ready. Okay. Well, watch your step. So we've got the Moride steps. Again, we have the large grab handles and the spring assist, which is always great. Um, makes them a lot easier. You don't have to worry about them falling down on you when you try to open them up. So you come in the unit, you got a choice. You can go straight and go around the, the little peninsula area right here from the, the kitchen, or you can go right and you can go up to the bedroom bathroom area. But the first thing that you're going to notice when you're going to walk in is you're going to see this new little control panel on the wall. It's called Jake Command. Last year, we came out with Jake Command, um, and we put them in our bigger Eagles, which is a bigger LED control pad. Um, it's got an Android tablet attached to it. It's our smart system. That's what we, it, our version of the smart system is for Jayco. This year on the HT's level, we give you all the same bells and whistles that you can have in the system, but you do most of it through the phone app. 
or on app on your iPad or whatever. But we wanted to give you some redundancy controls, and that's what this little LCD screen does. Nice. It allows you to toggle through, see your fresh tanks. It allows you to control some of the lighting functionalities. Um, it'll turn your heat pump on, all your AC, all those type of things. That's our redundancy to make sure that, you know, you can have those functionalities. You go to the app, you download the app, it Bluetooth pairs to it. Now you can control your um, your leveling from the outside. You can be standing outside and run your slide outs out. You can run your awning out. You can control all your lighting from your app. You can even control the HVAC from your app. So we're really excited about this new system. Nice. All right, looking left from from there, we're looking over the sink in the peninsula, like you said, and uh, yeah, pretty much a, a galley, if you will. What do we see towards the end of uh, the back end there? Uh, some interesting shapes, if nothing else. Yeah, so if you're looking right on the back end of the unit, you're going to see that kind of shrinks up a little bit. Um, we have we moved our entertainment center and our fireplace down into side there this year. Um, so that is all built in. You got some overheads above. We give you a little window. And if you look to the left, you see this big, nice cabinet. So what's that? It's got it's our TV and house inside there. It's got some doors up above. It's got a little cubby. But the thing that most people don't know that we came out with this year is we went with the hidden pantry. If you take your hand a little bit behind the TV, you'll see there's a little handle. If you grab that and you pull that open, you're going to see this big walk-in pantry. If you could lock the door, you could actually put one of the kids in there if you really needed to, right? <laughs> and, hey, and you that's can, a joke, everybody, by the yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> and you actually can lock the door. So what behind it, you'll see this little, um, little bungee cord. And behind the TV, there's a little screw head that sticks out that hooks from the inside goes through the little hole on the side of it and it hooks behind it. That's our travel lock. So some people go, well, why do I have that there? When they go to open it for the first time, it kind of doesn't want to open all the way. It's because that travel lock is there. So you feel more comfortable when you're going down the road, nothing's going to pop open. But the nice thing about it is it hooks to another little hook on the inside. So that if something happened and somebody did lock someone in there, say the kids were playing, mm. they can always go in and unhook it and push themselves out. But we could so, disable that if the kids have been really, really disobedient, right? Yes, you can. <laughs> okay, so from the pantry, we're looking at um, a possible fireplace. We're looking at the, the slide out, uh, and you have some options there and lots more storage. And as, as we're standing in that general area looking forward, why don't you describe what you're seeing as you look forward towards the front of the rig? Um, so what you're seeing is we've got our inner uh, kind of like our little feature wall. You have two big mirrors on there. Mm -hmm. um, the one on the left is fixed. The one on the right has just a little bit. You open the door. It's got about two inches worth of, uh, of space, enough to hang a lightweight jacket. We've got two little coat hooks inside there um, just to try to use as much space as we functionally could this year. And then as you walk up the stairs, you can start seeing, you know, the bedroom, the bathroom area. And it is, um, let's see, as we're walking up, that would be on the left side? If you're walking up, it's going to be on the door side. So you'll be walking up, it'll be on the right-hand side. Okay. Side. All right. And uh, anything unique in the bathroom area? So, like I said, this year, we took the, the toilet and the main sink, and we flopped them to the different sides so that we could move that plumbing over. So now your toilet is on the left, your sink's on the right. You've got that radius corner shower. That one has the glass slider doors in them. Nice big open spot. The skylight is right above it. So even a person that's six foot or taller can get inside there and shower. I'm six one. 
and I've got about a good six inches underneath that skylight before my head would even touch. All right. Well, so, don't, don't be turning on the water or anything. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still intrigued with a slide out. It, granted, I've only owned a dozen RVs, but none of them have ever had a slide with storage space as the primary goal there. Yeah. So you have two ways to get into the bedroom. You have the, the, the swinging door that goes in from the hallway, but then you also have the sliding door that comes in between the bedroom and the bathroom that the slide out actually, when comes in, is part of the linen closet. And it also has your wardrobe space on the other side. So what's nice about that is in the linen closet, when it's in all the way out, the door slides right into the, that slide out and it closes off, but now you have space for all your towels and everything. Um, you can leave the door open, allows you to give you more room to walk around. A lot of people like to get up in the middle of the night, go directly in there. They don't have to worry about going out and around. Gives you more room inside the bathroom to get dressed and move around. Now coming into the bedroom, we have, you got, not only do you have more hanging space in the wardrobe, and you got a couple more drawers and a nice little window that allows you to give you a little light and a countertop area. You know, you can, Somebody can be doing their makeup or they can be, you know, use sit there and just enjoy the light. But it also allows some cross breeze to come through because on the other side, we give you this nice big 48 by 29 inch window. So it gives you a lot of room and a lot of light. On either sides of the bed, you have these new wardrobes that kind of angle in an angle. Um, they're just storage. They don't have no hanging in them, but it does give you a lot of storage. And then you have nightstands on either side of the bed. Um, could you hang stuff in the wardrobe that's in the slide out? You can. Okay. So we, you know, for, for formal occasions, you can put your, um, your long sleeve camo shirts in there. Yep. You can. Okay, good. One, one thing that we did this front this year too, is, is we took those nightstands that are on either side of the bed and we lowered them. They used to have a little bitty door on them. We left them open. The reason why we did that is, is because now we're one of maybe two or three that I can even think of that have the ability to have a king bed option in the mid profile segment that the beds run north and south. So they run with the unit. We're <laughs> able to throw a king mattress and the, and the mattress just kind of slides over those wardrobe or those nightstands. So when the slide out comes in, the mattress just pushes over. And then when you get back to where you're going, mattress just slides over with the touch of a, your knees a little bit. And it still gives you good walk-around room without having to have it shoved to one side that most other people do when they do a king bed. I love They'll it. They'll take push it all the way to the one, and you have to crawl over to get to it. Let's talk so. a little bit about the um, the the fit the finishes in in the interior. It, it's very. It, it appears to me this colorblind host, um, light and bright. That's the that's as far as I'll go. You tell me what the psychology is there and describe some of those. Well, we have two distinct, uh, what we like to call interior designs and not just decors, right? Um, Eagle was the first to come out with two completely different interior design choices. Uh, we were first at Jayco to do it. Um, it caught on. Some of our other lines were starting to do it. Now it's coming more. And now you're starting to see the new, any of modern farmhouses, what spurred that whole thing. Mm -hmm. Modern farmhouse is what we call farmhouse white. It's got a lot of white. It's bright. Um, it It's modern looking. It pairs really well. People love it. And sometimes people don't like it. It's, it's if they, what some people like the traditional color, they like the browns. They like to come in and they feel like more of a natural wood. 
And what the nice thing is, we have that too. Because this year, we came out with our new American Craftsman color. It's a Huntington maple wood color that's got a bunch of different architectural feelings that's more like a Craftsman style. More clean lines, some things like that. But when we do that, we change between the flooring, the wood color on our cabinetry in the living room. Um, we have some accent colors that we keep the same. We have like our charred night oak and our bourbon chocolate. Those are our mainstays for our islands. Our bedrooms are always the bourbon chocolate and our bathrooms are the farmhouse white. So what that does is it allows us to concentrate just like you would at your home on certain aspects of the living area that, that change those colors. You're living in your kitchen change, but everything else stays the same. And then people ask me that all the time. Well, why don't you make the whole coach the same color? Because if you go to your house, you can go from room to room to room and not every one of them are going to be the same color. Your bathroom is going to be different than your living room. Your bedroom is going to be different than your kitchen. Your kitchen is going to usually be different than your living room. But since we are in a fifth wheel and we are in an RV, those always happen to be combined spaces. Well, at least there's a choice there. By the yeah. way, you're listening to the RV Travel Podcast. I'm Scott Linden. That's Jason Martin, Director of Product Development at Eagle Travel Trailers and Fifth Wheels. They're part of the Jayco team. Jason, if you had to summarize all of this into the thing you like the most about this, quote, half-ton towable, unquote, uh, Eagle 25.5 R-E-O-K. Man, that's a mouthful. Um, what, what do you like the most? Um, I like the, the use of space and openness in a small unit. That, that, is, that is the best thing to sum it up. You look at a small unit and it doesn't, and you walk into it and the way it's laid out and the way we have some storage and the way we use as much space as we can, it doesn't feel like a short, tight unit. There you have it. If you'd like more information, there's a great story by Tony Bartell at rvtravel.com. Tony, thanks for the lead. Jason, thanks for the tour appreciate that so much if you'd like uh you know anything else in that world it's probably summarized in one way shape or form over there at rvtravel.com i'll see you there jason thank you again for being a part of the rv travel podcast thank you i appreciate you having me and with that we'll wrap up this edition of the rv travel podcast thank you for listening hope you learned something had a little fun Maybe got a chuckle or two at my expense. I don't mind. Please tell your friends. Subscribe to the podcast. We're still working on every single way to do that, but you can always start at rvtravel.com. Go to the podcast page. If you are subscribed, please rate or review us. Visit the website. Take the polls. Call me to share your own story on the podcast. 541-382-1726. If you like what you hear, consider becoming a member at rvtravel.com. Beholden to no one except readers and listeners. I'll leave you with this. Since now I'm doing the podcast as well, I've been into RV travel for a while, but I decided I'd hang a map on the wall in my workout room of the United States and put pins into all the locations I've traveled to in my RV. I guess my first four stops ought to be the top two and the bottom two corners of the map. I'll see you in Florida and California.